Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our discussion comes from our most recent annual conference, Why is Housing So Unaffordable? Causes and Solutions. For the next 12 weeks, our discussions will revolve around the topic of housing and house prices with three subtopics. The first will be root causes, followed by an evaluation of current policy responses, and finishes with alternatives to current policy and thinking around affordability. Today, we spoke with Lindsay Duvall. Lindsay is a senior organizer for the National Low Income Housing Coalition, or NLIHC. NLIHC aims to create policy that ensures people of low income have access and can afford quality housing through advocacy, activism, and shaping public opinion. Housing is crucial to economic mobility. Having a roof over your head improves all sorts of outcomes from healthcare to education. We've talked a lot about some of the trends behind the housing issues we're all experiencing, but we haven't talked much about the trends going on within public policy that affects housing. Ms. Duval is an expert on this subject and helps us explore some of the funding and policies contributing to the situation today. According to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, the number of public housing units has declined by 200,000 since the 1990s. Recent policies, such as the American Rescue Plan of 2021, aimed at addressing this but only put a band-aid on the problem. To be clear, this is a complex problem that will require more than market-oriented ideas. To solve this problem, we will need local and federal governments, real estate developers, and financiers to work together and create a holistic solution that will benefit all citizens in the long term. All stakeholders will need to play a part in solving this. NLIHC advocates for policy on behalf of people in order to create a more equitable economy. Their goal is to maintain and improve existing public housing stock while expanding supply to ensure stability. Through their work, NLIHC improves welfare and helps fill in the cracks in our economy's foundation. Ms. Duval previously worked at the Oregon Food Bank, where she addressed hunger through outreach and volunteer mobilization. She earned her bachelor's degree in architecture from the University of Cincinnati and a master's degree in educational leadership and policy from Portland State University. The Henry George School joined Lindsay to discuss housing policy in the legislative pipeline, some fascinating facts regarding New York City's housing crisis, and which states offer sufficient affordable renting units for low-income earners. And the answer may surprise you. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's good to be with you. Um, it was so enlightening earlier, the first panel of this conference. I am not an economist, so I'm learning quite a bit. I'm excited to share a little piece of the puzzle with you today. So uh, I work for the National Low Income Housing Coalition. We're a national nonprofit, nonpartisan policy advocacy and research organization. We're based in Washington, D.C., but I live in New York in the Hudson Valley. Uh, so I have a little bit of local knowledge uh, conversation to add as well. So I've shared our mission statement here. I just want to underscore that we and all of our policy priorities are always focused on people with the lowest incomes. And this is because our research shows that this is where there is the greatest need. 
Uh, and when we talk about people with the lowest incomes or extremely low income households, we're talking about people making 30% of the area median income or less, which often includes people experiencing homelessness. At NLHC, we do believe that our housing crisis is caused by a market failure. There's just not enough homes that are affordable and available to low-income people, and that the cost of housing far outpaces wages. We went over so much data to um, get at the root causes earlier today, but I am going to just share a little bit more data with you to kind of underscore the policy solutions that NLHC proposes and advocates for. So I'm going to start with our annual GAP report, which we put out every year to quantify the shortage of affordable homes across the country. And when I use the word affordable, I'm talking about when people are making or paying no more than 30% of their income on their housing. So our latest GAP report shows that the U.S. has a total shortage of 7.3 million rental homes that are affordable and available to extremely low-income renters. And when I say available, I mean that it's not being rented with by someone who has a higher income. There's no state or major metro area where there is a sufficient affordable and available housing for the lowest income households. And on this map, the states in red have fewer than 30 rental homes available for every 100 extremely low income households. New York is in orange. I'll go into some New York specific data in a moment. Here we go. So I'm not going to go into all of this. I will drop a link to where you can find more on our website because we do want this data to be helpful for people in their advocacy. The graph on the left shows who we mean when we say extremely low income households in New York by several different uh, demographics. 16% of them are disabled, 39% are seniors, and 38% are in the workforce. They're just not making enough money to afford their housing. But I do want to really underscore the graph in the center. So um, again, there are 32 rental homes available and affordable for every 100 extremely low-income renter households across the state. But as you go up the income ladder, more housing is available and affordable. So at the top of this bar graph are people making 100% of area median income. There's a small gap. There's only 94 units available for every 100 of those households, but it's very, very small compared to the gap that you see for extremely low-income households. And this gap is why all of our policy priorities focus on the needs of the lowest-income households, because it, it just shows where the market is truly failing to meet that needs. And that means that a you know, really none of our policy priorities talk about homeownership. It's all about rental housing. I'm going to go into a little bit of our other major research report, which is called Out of Reach, and it focuses on the high cost of housing across the country. So before I dive into the numbers, and sorry if some of this is showing up kind of grainy, but I wanted to highlight some of the personal testimonies from people that we've interviewed about uh, the struggle to afford their rents because I feel that humanizing this, this issue is essential to advancing meaningful solutions. So we've had people talk about how they would have to work almost three jobs just to afford any place. There's nowhere else to go. I go here or I'm homeless, which shows the limited choices people have when looking for a place to live. Someone says, it's almost like when I breathe in, I can feel a scab on my heart. I am so tired. 
just um, really, really shows the struggle that people have on a daily basis looking and, and maintaining their housing. And on the bottom, we have someone share that my goal is to advocate myself right out of a job. And this talks to the growing uh, tenant organizing and power that we're seeing um, and, and making a real difference, especially at a state and local level. So in our out of reach report, we calculate the hourly housing wage that a full-time worker must earn in order to afford a modest one or two bedroom apartment. And we find there is no state, county, or major metro area where a full-time minimum wage worker can afford a two-bedroom apartment at market rate. The states in dark blue have a housing wage above $26 an hour. New York has the fourth highest housing wage in the country for a two-bedroom apartment at $40.08 an hour. People of color are disproportionately impacted by the gap between low wages and high rents because they're more likely than white workers to work in low wage jobs and to rent their homes. This graph compares one and two bedroom housing wages to median hourly housing wage distributions of white, black and Latino workers in the US. And as you can see at the 50th percentile, the median hourly wage of a full-time white worker is adequate to afford a one-bedroom rental, uh, rental home at fair market rent, but the median wage of a full-time Black or Latino worker is below that. At the 60th percentile, a full-time white worker can afford a two-bedroom rental home at fair market rent. Meanwhile, a full-time Black or Latino worker at the 60th percentile for Black and Latino workers, respectively, can't afford even a one-bedroom rental home. Here in New York, the two-bedroom housing wage, as I said, is $40.08 an hour, obviously much higher than our state's minimum wage. Another way to look at this is that at minimum wage, a, a minimum wage worker would need to work 113 hours per week to afford a two-bedroom apartment um, or 98 hours a week to afford a one-bedroom home. In New York City, the hourly wage for a two-bedroom home is over $47 an hour. And at this point, the data is over a year old. So I'll put a link finished to where you can find these data reports by states. That's helpful for people in understanding the, the causes um, and in their advocacy. But I'll move us on now to solutions. So NLHC's housed campaign is a policy agenda to solve our nation's housing crisis, advancing anti-racist policies and achieving the large scale sustained investments and reforms necessary to ensure that renters with the lowest incomes have an affordable place to call home. And there are four key pillars to this campaign. The first is to bridge the gap between incomes and housing costs. And we can do that through creating a universal rental assistance program. The second is to expand and preserve the supply of deeply affordable rental homes. And one way to do that is to invest in our um, in the National Housing Trust Fund, which is a federal program exclusively designed to build deeply affordable housing. The third is to provide emergency rental assistance to stabilize families who are in crisis and prevent the devastating consequences of an eviction. And we can do that um, as we've learned as a country through uh, programs like the Emergency Rental Assistance Program that was created during the pandemic. The fourth is to strengthen and enforce renter protections, and that's to rebalance the pow power between landlords and tenants. 
So while transformational policy change is required to end our nation's housing crisis, and it's been a long time coming, we saw that during the pandemic, transformation was possible and it happened very quickly. The government invested over $46 billion into the emergency rental assistance program, which was more money allocated to renters than ever before in our nation's history. And we were able to achieve a nearly year-long moratorium on evictions, which helped millions of households remain stably and safely housed. These, of course, were short-term protections. Um, but we did come very close to securing some long-term change a couple of years ago when the House passed the Build Back Better Act. This would have invested in the National Housing Trust Fund to build and preserve the supply of deeply affordable homes. It would have funded uh, the preservation of our nation's crumbling public housing stock, and it would have expanded rental assistance to several thousand, uh, several hundred thousand more households. Unfortunately, as we know, the legislation failed to pass in the Senate. So the good news today is that there have been many bills introduced this Congress that align with our House campaign, and I'm going to highlight some of those in a moment. The bad news is that we have a divided Congress, which means that we really don't expect to see any major housing legislation passed at the federal level this year. And in fact, we're now in a position of having to defend some of the existing programs and funding rather than see increase. And uh, the most important thing, though it's not a policy solution to talk about, is the federal budget, because there are many, many programs already in existence to support the lowest income households in various ways, and they all need to be funded at higher levels. Chronic underfunding of our housing programs has left only one out of four households who are eligible for federal housing assistance to receive it. And as we know, this leads to years, decades long wait lists for, for different programs across the country. And in the meantime, people spending way, way more on their housing than they truly can afford, doubling up um, or you know, falling behind on the rents and spiraling down into homelessness. So each year, NLHC advocates for the highest level of funding possible for all housing, uh, homelessness, and community development programs in the budget. I've listed our current budget priorities here. And I'll just note that the recent debt ceiling negotiations have led to really harmful spending limits in the next budget. It's estimated that HUD needs $13 billion increase next year just to maintain its existing levels of service. The House and Senate appropriations committees have both released their draft spending mill bills for HUD funding in the last couple of weeks using the, the debt ceiling kind of limits or caps on, on funding. So the House version will increase funding by $6.4 billion. The Senate version increases funding by $8.26 billion. Neither of them get to that $13 billion, so we are expecting to see some type of cuts to HUD funding, um, and we're continuing to really push to minimize the harm on the lowest income households. So I'll go into some priority legislation that has been proposed that is in a, alignment with our housed campaign. So the first is the Ending Homelessness Act. This would create a universal voucher program to ensure that every eligible household receives rental assistance. It would also ban source of income discrimination and help to increase housing choice for families. 
and it would invest $5 billion in the National Housing Trust Fund to address the shortage of affordable housing and to combat homelessness. The next is the Family Stability and Opportunity Vouchers Act. This is a stepping stone towards universal vouchers. It would create 250,000 new, new housing choice vouchers targeting low-income families with young children, and it would pair them with counseling services to help them move to areas of greater opportunity. This has been introduced in the House and Senate with bipartisan support this year. The next is the American Housing and Economic Mobility Act. It would invest $45 billion annually into the National Housing Trust Fund, again, to build and preserve the supply of deeply affordable rental homes. It also would ban source of income discrimination and incentivize communities to reduce zoning and regulatory barriers. This bill, unfortunately, has not yet been introduced in this Congress, but we are working with our congressional champions to, to see it introduced soon. The fourth is the Eviction Crisis Act, also called the Stable Families Act, and this would create a permanent version of the Emergency Rental Assistance Program and funded at $3 billion annually. So nothing like what we saw during the pandemic, but still a permanent version of that program. We all know that families can be one unexpected car repair or medical bill away from facing an eviction. And this, this would be um, a, a solution for those families. So it would uh, target low-income households facing, as I said, a financial shock to help them avoid the devastating consequences of an eviction. Um, it too has bipartisan support, but has not yet been reintroduced in this Congress. And finally, the Fair Housing Improvement Act would expand the Fair Housing Act to prohibit housing discrimination based on source of income, as well as military and veteran status. This would make it easier for low-income households to access affordable housing in communities of their choice. So I also want to touch on just some regulation and administrative action that can also advance solutions. So one exciting opportunity now is that the Federal Housing Finance Agency is accepting public input about creating federal renter protections for all households living in rental properties with a federally backed mortgage. It's estimated that a quarter of all rental properties in the country have a federally backed mortgage and that this could impact 12 million people. Uh, so NLHC is working with other national partners to mobilize advocates across the country to submit their comments and push for strong, enforceable tenant protections and to ensure that people with lived experience are central to the process of their creation and enforcement. Our top priorities for federal renter protections specifically include source of income protection, just cause eviction standards, anti-rent gouging protections, and minimum habitability and accessibility standards. And I'll just share the comment period ends in one week. Uh, again, I'll drop some links if people are inspired to take action. So um, in addition to expected cuts to HUD funding in the budget, there are some other threats that I wanted to highlight towards some of the, um, the progress and certainly the goals that we have. So across the country, there's been a growing backlash against people experiencing homelessness and real solutions to this crisis. 
states and localities have been passing dozens of bills that punish or even criminalize people experiencing homelessness, impose punitive requirements, and even prevent the development of affordable housing. The Housing Plus Act, which was introduced by Representative Andy Barr from Kentucky, is one example that would harm efforts to end homelessness. And it would do so by undermining HUD's ability to prioritize evidence-based solutions to ending homelessness, such as the Housing First model. It would also divert scarce resources to outdated, ineffective, and costly strategies. It would punish individuals struggling to address substance use disorder, undermine access to their effective treatments, and if it's not clear, NLHC and our partners strongly oppose this bill. So NLHC exclusively focuses on federal policy advocacy, but we do have some broad suggestions for state and local policy solutions. And I know my colleagues will get into more details on, um, on that level in a moment. First, that any solutions must target people with the greatest needs, as I've shared with our research, that's people um, living you know, at, the, at, at the poverty level, making 30% or less of the area median income which also includes people experiencing or at risk of homelessness. <clears throat> These solutions must include long-term affordability periods to ensure stability and combat gentrification. We are seeing a lot, uh, for example, of the low-income housing tax credits projects and their affordability periods, which is really reducing the country's stock of affordable housing by the day. Um, and we want to ensure that any new programs being included now or extended have very long-term affordability periods that help people remain stably housed. We also have to ensure that community oversight, that there is community oversight and transparency in these programs, and especially by and for people who are most impacted by them, such as people living on low incomes. So that's what I have to kick us off with, um, my role is to mobilize people to take action. So I'm ending with this call to action and link to our legislative action center. I'll drop that in the chat now so you can learn more about some of these policy solutions. And I look forward to chatting more in a bit. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.